This is episode one of A Thought for Food, a special series within the Science in the City podcasts, brought to you by the Sackler Institute for Nutrition Science at the New York Academy of Sciences. I'm your host, David Hoffman. Episode one, My Dinner with My Dinner. I'd like to start with a problem that confronts anyone who's trying to learn something about nutrition, particularly if you're a non-scientist like I am. To explain it, here's an excerpt of a conversation I had with Dr. Michael McBurney, who was founding department head of the Department of Nutrition Science at Texas A&M, and he's now head of scientific affairs with a nutritional products company called DSM. In today's world, um, we are all exposed to way more information. It used to be not saying this is correct, but it used to be somewhat that science got debated behind closed doors and then recommendations and policy were released to the public. And we now live in a much more transparent and global world, which I think is good, but it means that all of us have more of a burden to interpret all of this science and understand, is it right? And that's challenging for us. It's overwhelming. To give an example of what he's talking about, I went on the New York Times website and looked up all the recent articles, just from that one media source, about caffeinated beverages. And I found articles about studies that suggest that they cause acid reflux, migraines, disrupted sleep patterns, elevated pulse, insomnia, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, reduction in effectiveness of antidepressants and osteoporosis drugs, and if you're pregnant, low birth weight and even miscarriage. But they also improve mental sharpness, cause a 20% reduction in the risk of depression in women, cause better performance at the gym, and prevent asthma, diabetes, heart disease, cirrhosis, prostate cancer, endometrial cancer, and gout. So should I drink coffee or what? And I haven't even eaten anything yet. The latest study finds X on disease Y, um, but that's not the totality of the science. Does this latest study really help explain that and fit in, or is it just a single study that now needs to be processed and integrated with everything else? The other part of it is that there's so many more voices now of opposition and activism that are talking louder through our media. And it's gotten harder and harder for us because, I mean, Everybody is an expert. It's unclear who are the experts. How can a person make a decision about what to eat in, in a scientifically aware way? Someone who doesn't have the time to dedicate the next 10 years of their life to really learning yeah. nutrition science. I don't have the solution. I, I'm, I, think it, I think it's very challenging. So let's try and get a handle on some of the basics. And let's do it in the setting where we actually encounter food in the real world at a meal. Let's sit down to dinner with some people who really know what they're talking about and ask them some very simple questions. What is food? And how does our digestive system actually work? So here we are at a perfectly lovely dinner party at the home of Dr. Megan Groom, who is the Director of Science in the City and also K-12 Education at the New York Academy of Sciences. Cheers, everybody. Cheers. Cheers. <laughs> uh, our brace of experts here, maybe you guys could just introduce yourselves and 
tell us a little bit about your background. Um, sure, my name is Mandana Arabi and I'm director of the Sacre Institute for Nutrition Science at the New York Academy of Sciences. Um, I have a medical degree and I also have a PhD in nutrition. Hi, I'm Andrea Shea and uh, I also have a PhD in nutrition and I'm currently an independent consultant. I want to start asking you guys some really basic questions. I'm, so the simplest question I could possibly think of is why do I need to eat food? <laughs> so what I like to tell my um, four-year-old son why he needs to eat when he's, he's not interested in eating, I said, your body needs energy, your, your brain needs sugar, and we get it from food. And he'll say, you know, well, what is energy? What is in the food that makes this energy? So I tell him about macronutrients and micronutrients. And what exactly are nutrients? To help answer that, let's go back to Dr. McBurney just for a moment. So nutrients really are things that are essential for life, but there's really three categories. So there's nutrients that we eat for energy sources because we burn those for energy to do, for muscles to do work, for cells to do work. There are nutrients that are needed for structure function to make things to do certain functions in cells and organs that we have. And there are nutrients that are facilitators of chemical reactions that are needed in order to get energy and for things to happen. They're not all fit into one or the other, but those are generally the three functions that nutrients have. And now back to doctors Araby and Shea at dinner. For example, we have proteins, carbohydrates, fats. These are macronutrients. These are you know, molecules that have a specific role in the body, and they are the end stage of breaking down different food items in our body. Could one of you guys sort of give me a quick top-level definition of each of those things? What's a fat? What's a protein? What's a carbohydrate? So for fats, which are also known as lipids, these are things that all your cells in your body need. Um, they're in the membranes. They're floating around in your blood. Fat is what keeps you warm. Oh. Proteins are needed to build tissues in the body to produce all these different enzymes that we need to maintain the functions. And carbohydrates, they're sugars. So carbs, things we think of as dietary carbs, bread, pasta, potatoes, in the end, after the breakdown, they turn into sugar. Absolutely. Right. But, but your body needs sugar. And so, you know, you can demonize sugar, but without sugar, your brain cannot function. And if you do not consume sugar or carbs, your body actually is kind of tricked into making them. If you deprive yourself of one of them specifically, then there are pathways to make up for it. When you don't get enough, you know, glucose or sugar, there's there are ways that amino acids might actually be turned into sugars, but it comes at a cost. It's easy enough to understand that the body needs a specific collection of chemicals, proteins, fats, sugars, and also the micronutrients, vitamins and minerals, in order to create new cells and tissues and keep itself running. Where we all start to get confused, though, is how food, like the food on my plate at this dinner, chicken, cauliflower, mashed potatoes, equates to nutrients. Maybe we should start by looking at the process of digestion. What happens to food when we eat it? And how our body breaks it down into these simpler parts? What I want to do is I want to talk about the pathway of how we get these building blocks into our body, right? And so I was hoping we could just sort of do a play-by-play. -play. So let's, I'm going to eat something, and I want you to describe actually what's happening <laughs> while I do that. You're going to be, you know, and you can be color commentary if you like. All right. You're looking at your food. <laughs> That's important, actually. Perfect. 
Yeah, that's important. Like, um, you know, the feeling that you have about what you're eating, that also affects your experience mm -hmm. of the dinner. So your body prepares for uh, digestion even before you ingest anything. The gastric juices start being released in your stomach, and sometimes the saliva increases in your mouth. So I have this chicken on my fork. We have all my gastric juices are going. I'm salivating. <laughs> so I'm putting it in my mouth. So right now it looks like you're chewing. Um, your mandible <laughs> is kind of moving up and down. And uh, this is a meat product. So it looks like you're using your whole entire set of teeth, your canines and your molars. And you're kind of breaking it down, also known as mastication. This process of chewing, or mastication if you want to use the technical term, might seem like a formality, but it's actually a crucial step. Whole pieces of food are too solid and dry for the stomach and intestines to work with, so we turn them, by chewing, into a soft, wet ball called a bolus that's small enough and lubricated enough for us to swallow comfortably, and therefore also has enough surface area for the enzymes in the stomach to do their job. And that's why if you don't chew well, if you eat too fast and, you know, you just kind of gobble it down, then it won't get, you know, you may have a stomach ache or the food may not be completely absorbable because the enzymes couldn't work very well. All those different kinds of teeth that she mentioned are important too because they identify us as omnivores. We have both canines for tearing meat and molars for grinding up plants. Throughout the digestive system, there are particular chemicals at work called enzymes. They're a kind of protein, to be specific, and what they do is catalyze chemical reactions. In this case, taking food, which is made up of all kinds of chemical components, and breaking it down into individual nutrients that can then be carried in the blood to wherever they're needed in the body. There are different sets of enzymes in all the organs along the digestive tract, the mouth, the stomach, the small intestine, the large intestine, that extract different nutrients from the food. There's a number of enzymes in the saliva that's actually starting to work on the uh, meat. A little tiny bit of the carbs might start to be broken down. Um, also, the fat broken down into diglycerides, uh, but very minimal. It's just the, the very edge, the initiation of, of digestion. Okay, so I've swallowed, it's, so it's now in my stomach. Yeah, and so what's, what's the first thing that happens when it, that piece of chicken's now hit that? Well, what they say is that the stomach does both changes in the physical aspects of the food as well as the chemical aspects of it. So the food goes around, increasing the surface of the food, so there is optimal interaction with the enzyme. One important thing is that the proteins get broken down in the stomach. There are some enzymes, trypsin and uh, chemotrypsin and pepsin also, that break down the protein. The stomach is basically a sack made of muscles that sits at the bottom of the esophagus. In addition to its particular set of enzymes, it expands and contracts in a churning motion that breaks the bolus down mechanically. It also bombards the bolus with hydrochloric acid, which kills unwanted bacteria and changes the pH of the food, making the protein-absorbing enzymes more effective. The end result is the transformation of the bolus into a thick liquid called chyme that can then pass into the small intestine, where most of the actual absorption of nutrients happens. There's a particularly interesting mechanism in place because different kinds of food require more or less time in the stomach before they're ready to move on to the intestines. And so there are special cells called chemoreceptors that can determine when the food is ready to continue. Um, so they come in touch with the food and then they can sense what's the content. Like they, they can sense, oh, there is a lot of fats because the ends of the molecules look like fat molecules. 
and they can decide then how long they should keep the food inside before the stomach gets emptied. In the part right after the stomach called duodenum, there are also lots of receptors there. So when some of the food passes to that part out of the stomach, that part senses, oh, well, this is a food that's not completely digested. It's still a lot of, you know, big molecules there. So the signal goes back to the stomach to keep the food for longer. So there's this kind of feedback from the next part of the digestive system to the previous part to make sure that there is coordination. So when something new comes in, you get some messages from some other parts that says, okay, well, you have to pass the food. Um, so if you can imagine kind of this wave-like um, movement that helps your body um, move the food through. This is the constant movement of the digestive system. So then the food moves as chyme from the stomach into the small intestine. It's worth mentioning that it's called the small intestine because of its diameter. It's only about three centimeters around as opposed to eight for the large intestine. But it's actually enormously long. If you were to take yours out of your belly and stretch it out in a straight line, which, of course, I don't recommend, it would extend an average of around 23 feet. The large intestine is only around 5 feet long. The small intestine has the ideal kind of surface for absorbing things. Like, there are these finger-like protrusions all through it, so it has a lot of absorptive surface. And all of it comes into contact with the food. So then there are different cells that are specialized for absorbing different kinds of molecules. And they they manage to capture as much as they can. And then it goes to the liver. The liver does a lot of, you know, it attaches some of the molecules to their carriers and lets lets them be carried away. And then from the liver, the nutrients go into the bloodstream, which is an amazing transit system for carrying things such as these nutrients and oxygen from the lungs, to all the cells of your body, which need these things to function. There are different ways for carrying things in our blood. Usually there is like a specific carriage mechanism for different kinds of molecules that holds their hand and carries them to where they are supposed to go in the body. This whole process of digestion so far, from swallowing through the stomach and small intestine, takes between 8 and 24 hours to accomplish, depending on what you eat. So, I ate the chicken that we just ate. It's now, let's say, lunchtime tomorrow. So now we're in the large intestine, yeah? And how's that, what, what goes on in there? Well, by the time the food gets to the large intestine, you know, it's basically just, the water has to get absorbed so that it becomes kind of semi-solid and then solid. And then, you know, it's just thrown the, out. The, the last of the water that was in Exactly, the food. has to get absorbed in the, small, in the large intestine. Some specific contents, for example, specific chemical molecules, some medicines, for example, sometimes get absorbed in the large intestine. But there's not a whole lot of absorption of you know, important nutrients happening in the large intestine. So it's, it's really just... It's, it's basically a holding tank. Yeah. And then obviously, then we release. What would happen if I ate something and swallowed something that's not digestible? Some birds swallow stones. That's the voice of Dr. Groom, our hostess. At this point, the other dinner guests start getting involved in the conversation. What happens if I ate a rock, like a bird? Hypothetic. Yeah, I'm not going to do that right now. I'm sorry, I didn't serve any rocks with dinner. I mean, I assume if it's small enough, it'll just go through. Right, so if it's it's small enough, it will just kind of pass through, and it would 
hopefully end up in the toilet in 24 hours, 30 hours. Uh, looking at your plate, yeah, um, the the salad that you have there, the uh -huh. really nice green looking salad. Should I eat um, a piece of that for, for the so sides? It sounds crunchy. It's good. Yeah. It sounds fresh. Some peppers and uh, cucumber, romaine lettuce in there. So part of uh, the, the plant fibers there um, are cellulose, and so that actually is not absorbed in your body. And so as an example of something that's not digested by your body, it actually just kind of passes through your system. So within a vegetable or within something that's like a, a lettuce, I can digest part of it but not other parts of it? Exactly. Okay. Can I ask, is that... Is that healthy? Is there a reason that we have the cellulose passing through without being digested? So, so it helps with the digestion. It helps things move. It helps also with uh, stopping the absorption of some of the things that we don't want to be absorbed through the food. For example, you know, if you eat a lot of fiber with your food, um, the cholesterol gets less absorbed, and that's a good thing. So having fiber with high cholesterol foods, it helps to control your cholesterol. Not all of it gets absorbed. And one thing, you know, you were asking about animals, for example, cows, they have four parts in their stomach, and they have the ability actually to, to digest cellulose. So that's the difference. You know, human beings are not capable of digesting cellulose. That's, that's why we can't eat hay. Right, or exactly. Grass. Exactly. Yeah. And that's why probably, you know, our diet is not completely plant-based. There's other things here other than chicken. We have mashed potatoes, we have roasted cauliflower. I want to ask about how some of these parts of that process we just described would be different from eating some of these different things. For instance, there's a green salad and there's roasted cauliflower. The fact that that's roasted and that's raw, what's the difference between what's going on? The raw usually, of course, has the micronutrients, especially the vitamins, in its integrity. So when you cook some vegetables, it, they lose some of their, their, their vitamin content. But at the same time, we were talking about, for example, the fat-soluble vitamins. There are sometimes some of these vitamins get better absorbed, actually, if you cook the foods together. For example, if you cook carrot with chicken, because there's fat in chicken, it may be possible that it actually creates, you know, it, it helps the absorption of the vitamin A in the carrots. Even cooking, um, let's say, carrots and butter will help with vitamin A if, if you have carrots in your dinner. Because of the vitamin A in the butter? Because vitamin A is fat-soluble vitamin. Oh, so eating and it with so, fat mm -hmm, makes you... Exactly. Oh, it's a yeah. built-in transmission with system. With chicken, for example, because chicken also has fat or, you know, so... You know, this tradition of creating stews, for example, cooking vegetables mm -hmm. with meat, there's something behind it probably because it helps with the fat-soluble vitamins to be absorbed better out of the vegetables because you're having them with meat that probably has fat in it. Just how did we do nutritionally here? If I eat the same meal twice a day for the rest of my life, how would I be doing? Okay. Well, let me ask you first. How do you feel about what you ate? Like you feel like it was like a feeling, like balanced meal? Yeah. How did you? Well, I have, a, I have a primary protein. I have looks like I have lots of vegetables here. Um, you know, I have starch, which I enjoy, which I know is probably not the best thing for me, but I, you know, that makes me feel satisfied, full to eat a big plate of mashed potatoes mm -hmm. and. But the, and then I'm thinking, oh, I have something healthy because I have the salad and I have the, the cauliflower. I know that cabbage family has a lot of good things mm -hmm. in it for you. So I would say I thumbs up. Have, yeah. So and, and of course, uh, <laughs> one important thing also is that you're not hungry anymore, right? So, mm -hmm. you know, you were hungry, you had your dinner, you feel like, okay, well, I'm not hungry anymore. So 
Um, that's usually the, the general experience. Like you eat because you respond to your experience of hunger. And then once that's gone, you, you're satisfied and you move on. But um, you know, from the nutrition perspective, you're also concerned about the contents of the food. So for example, you know, Andrea and I were looking at our meal tonight and we were kind of thinking, well, you know, looking at the ingredients, it's possible that this meal was deficient, for example, in vitamin A because we didn't have any red or yellow or orange <laughs> from vegetables and fruits in it or you know butter or uh, some things uh, some ingredients that could have added the necessary vitamin A to the meal so that's one you know one thing that we noticed what, what would be the consequences of not getting enough vitamin A in your diet well vitamin A is a fat soluble vitamin and so it would take um, a little bit of time, but the eventual outcome would be blindness. <laughs> no, no, this is not something that would happen, this is not something that would happen just having one meal that's deficient in vitamin A, but in the long run, if you have a diet that's, you know, deficient, there, then um, yes, there's possibility of uh, damage to mucous membranes, especially in the eye, and it creates, um, you know, night blindness and eventually, you know, total blindness because the cornea gets destroyed. So that's something amazing to think about. A person could be eating what seems to be full, regular meals and be missing something imperceptible that's so important that not having it for long enough could make you go blind. In the case of this particular menu, adding some carrots to the salad or some butter to the mashed potatoes would have probably made it nutritionally complete. But how do we know that? And what does that mean? And that definitely makes us want to spend some more time in the mysterious world of micronutrients, what we all know as vitamins and minerals. It turns out that even though we only need these chemicals in extremely small doses, thousandths or even millionths of a gram per day, the lack of them can do a whole host of terrible and fascinating things to our bodies. So let's talk about that in the next episode. Join us for episode two when we'll take our vitamins. Thanks very much to our experts in this episode, Dr. Madonna Arabi, Dr. Andrea Shea, and Dr. Michael McBurney, and also to the host of our dinner party, Dr. Megan Broom, and the other dinner guests, Kieran Haslinger-Hoffman, Mavray McLean, Dr. Mohamed Tavakoli, and Peter Sharp. This podcast has been a production of Science and the City and the Sackler Institute for Nutrition Science, not-for-profit programs of the New York Academy of Sciences. Visit them on the web at www.scienceandthecity.org and www.nyas.org slash nutrition.